I wore this shirt hoping that if I committed to wearing it yesterday, the shockers would pull through, but that didn't happen. So, but I committed still. Um, I think all of us struggle with uh, kind of keeping God at the center of our focus in everything. There's a few things that, you know, uh, you come to church, oh, God's there. You know, you, you have dinner with your family, God's there. Uh, but there are some things when you're like, you know, for me, when I'm playing video games and I get angry, maybe God's not there, you know. But keeping God at the center of everything we do is something we should all strive for as Christians. And uh, even through all of that, we still end up sinning because we're human and that's what we do. Luckily, through the grace of God, we uh, are forgiven for those sins. But I think sometimes we feel like it can be such an overwhelming struggle, like no matter what happens, I'm going to fall right back into the sin every time. Like, I can't get out of it. We're not the only ones who struggle with sin, right? Everyone around us, probably, we all struggle with some of the same things. Uh, but there was another guy, uh, I've been doing some reading in uh, Second Chronicles and the Chronicles books, and King David also struggled, struggled with many sins, everything from uh, uh, adultery to even murder. Um, but he's still regarded as kind of this great king that God had chosen, and I was kind of wondering why that is. And I think the big reason is because even through all of that, he always came back to God, and he asked for forgiveness, and he was willing to accept the consequences of his actions. Um, sorry. <laughs> so uh, even us today, we can kind of take a lesson from that in when we sin. Keep God at the center of your focus still. Don't lose sight of that, because it's so easy to, to yell at God and go, why did you do this? Why did you do this to me, this horrible thing? But kind of keeping him at the center, maybe there's not, maybe I don't have to hold all the pieces, you know, to this puzzle. Um, I want to read real quick from Matthew 6, 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So this week as you're going through, um, if something, maybe, you know, I'm a really bad morning person, so like I can be late really easily, and I get really angry when that happens. But maybe if you're like me and you do that, you know, take a minute, even if you know you're going to be late, take a minute and say a little prayer, God, I know, like, you know, I could have done some things to change, but I need to keep you at the center of my focus this morning so I can keep you throughout the day. Uh, so if you struggle with something this week, just say a little prayer to yourself. Acknowledge your anger, accept it, and ask God for forgiveness. Here, uh, real life, we... Uh, practice public communion. There's tables on either side of the auditorium, so whenever you're ready during this next song, uh, feel free to do that with you and your family or a stranger. Invite strangers up. That's always great. Uh, let's pray. Dear God, uh, I thank you for this congregation that we are all able to uh, get here in the morning, and we are able to, to even if even if we're late, uh, we still come, and that we are able to uh, keep our focus on you this morning. And I pray that this week you help. Uh, help this sermon and this service here uh, kind of be a propellant for the rest of the week that we're able to keep our eyes focused on you all week in everything we do. And I pray that um, you're able to touch the hearts and lives of these people today and show people that even if even if they, we don't understand what your plan is in the moment, that you will help us understand that we need to trust you and have faith in you.
darkness flew, the morning broke in my view. When day had come again, I knew, and all we sinners sang. In muck and mire, our wretched souls had fallen to the depths below. Hell deserved, but there was hope.
darkness flew the morning broke in light into when day had come again anew and though we sinners sang and though we sinners sang yeah all we sinners sang hey, go ahead and be seated. Uh, once again, welcome to Real Life. Glad to have you here. In just a few moments, we're going to participate in a time of giving. It's where we receive offering to help the mission and ministry of Real Life. Um, my name's Corey, and if it's your first time here, uh, welcome. We're so glad to have you. The second part of our mission as a church is to look more like Jesus every day. And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, you read this. It says, whoever says he abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. In other words, we should look like Jesus in our daily lives. As we prepare for our time of giving, I just want to um, remember the life that Jesus modeled for us. It was a loving life. It was a generous life. He's calling us to reflect that generosity. So as we strive to look like Jesus, let's keep in mind that walking in the way that he walked is to walk generously through this life. I'm thankful that Jesus taught us to live this way, that he provides us grace for every step along the way. And so I just invite you to pray with me in a moment that Jesus would guide us to live generously as we strive to look more like him every day. When we're done with that prayer, there's going to be some guys, uh, folks up at the front with some buckets. They're going to pass those through the back. And uh, that's just an opportunity, again, for uh, the people who call Real Life Home to support this mission and ministry. And so if you just pass those buckets back, whether you put anything in there or not, so that they get to the back, we would appreciate it. You can also give securely at reallifecc.us. Just click the orange little icon in the bottom right-hand corner. We appreciate that uh, as well. Let's pray and we'll receive the offering. God, thank you for being a generous God. There's so much that you have given us. And, and, and most of the time, all we talk about is, is this great and incredible gift of Jesus. We just celebrated that gift at Christmas, not even a month ago. God, we do thank you for that gift, but there's gifts that you give us each and every day. We live on an incredible and beautiful planet. We get to wake up every morning and, and breathe the air. And our lungs fill up and our heart beats and we get to hold the hands of the people that we love. And, and God, even in difficult times, there's still glimpses of your grace in that and your generosity extends even in those moments. So God, we just desire to look like you to be generous as well. Would you help us to do that, to, to live with open hands instead of closed fists? Would we be a generous people, God, that others might see you in us? That's our heart and that's our desire today, God. In Jesus' name, amen.
Have you ever wondered um, what God wanted you to do with your life? Any, any point in your life uh, after you came to Christ, or maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, that, that you were like, God, just show me what you want me to do. Just tell me what you want me to do. Have you ever had that feeling? I think a lot of Christians have that question. God, what is it that you want to do with my life? What is it you want me to do for you? What is it you want me to accomplish for you? When I was a, 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 a young person, very young, uh, you know, my dad was a pastor, and I believed that that was what I was going to do. I was going to be a pastor. And then as I grew up in a pastor's home, I... Um, recognized really quickly that being a pastor is not super easy. And so they saw difficulties with my dad and the church and the stuff that he went through. There were financial struggles. There were struggles between he and mom, between he and the rest of the family. And, and it became pretty apparent to me as I was young that, that, that God was not calling me in to, to be a pastor. I'm like, I'm, in fact, I was pretty sure at one point in my life, God wouldn't call anybody to be a pastor uh, given what went on. And so I decided that maybe what God wanted me to do with my life was to be a youth minister. And so I even went to college expecting that that's what I would do. I mean, I was young, I was hip, I was cool at one point in my life, a long time ago. And, and so I thought, maybe God wants me to be a youth minister. I'll deal with youth and I'll, I'll help them and I'll help them through their walk. Um, I was even a, a youth leader at a, a small church for um, a couple years. Uh, a few of the people that attended that youth group are even in full-time ministry today and going to church and involved in, in worship. But that experience at that church taught me something. God was not calling me to be a youth minister. <laughs> not uh, at all. I knew that was not the case. Um, and so I kind of wandered around for a while. Um, in fact, I, I started building houses. worked for a general contractor, and built houses for a couple years. And let me just tell you, I loved that job. I loved almost everything about it. There were a few months when it was horribly cold and miserable and awful and every day stunk. But other than that, it was a fantastic job. I loved building things. I loved doing work and at the end of the day being able to look back and, and, and say, this is what I did. And that was so neat. But, but I remember one day I was driving down Ohio in Augusta, driving from a job site. It was a sunny day. I had the window in my old F-100 with three on the tree. You remember those? Driving my truck down the road, I had the radio just as loud as I could get it, playing some, you know, awesome 80s music. And I remember um, I, I was there, I was driving, and I was like, I love this. This is fantastic. I remember praying in the car that day, going, God, if this is not what you want me to do with the rest of my life, you'd better change it. Because I could do this forever. Within a year... We had packed up and moved to Idaho, and I was back in Bible college to be uh, a minister. And you know the rest of the story. So I've been doing this for about 23 years now. This is my second church. I've been here um, much longer than uh, I was at the last one. Probably the question that I get asked more than any other question in the last 23 years is, what does God want me to do with my life? And I have people come who, you know, the new Christians, baby Christians, give their life to Jesus, and they, they come in and go, does God want me to quit my job? Because, look, I, I work with people who use foul language, or um, I work in an industry or a place where there's just a lot of sexual immorality going on, and, and, and I'm just, uh, it's just this constant drag on my spiritual life, and, and maybe I need to quit my job. 
I've had people come and say, you know, what does God want me to do with my life? Should I stop hanging out with my non-Christian friends? Do I need to find another job? Do I need to move to another place? Do I need to do something different with my life? What is it that God wants me to do? Well, um, today, you'll be glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're here. Because for 95 to 98% of you here this morning and watching online, I'm going to answer that question for you finally today. I'm going to tell you exactly what it is that God wants you to do with your life. Now, maybe you've been in church for a long time and you're going, yeah, right. Well, if you'll hear it this morning, then that's going to be what you're going to walk out with. You're going to know what it is that God wants you to do. And so before we get into the 95 to 98% of us that I want to deal with this morning, I want to talk about that 2 to 5% because we can deal with them for just a little bit, get them out of the way, and then we can focus on the rest of us. Because the truth is that for a very small percentage of you, God may call you into full-time ministry. Maybe that's a pastor or a, a teacher, a, a, a youth leader, maybe an executive pastor in a church um, administration, some part of church work that God might be calling or directing you to in your life. A small, a small percentage may be called into that. A small percentage of still part of that 2 to 5% may be called to be missionaries. Maybe go to an inner city or go across the sea and, and, and be a missionary or plant a church in some other country, in some other place. And I actually dream that, that, that one day we'll be able to see kids in our little lifers or life kids ministry, and we're going to see God's hand on them as they grow up. They're going to grow up here in this church, and they're going to become staff members here at the church, or they're going to become missionaries. And we're going to see God's hand on them, and we're going to agree. We're going to send them off to do that work, and we're going to support them, and it's going to be a fantastic thing. But the number of people who are going to do that is infinitely small. It's only a very small percentage who are going to be called to do something in full-time ministry or mission in their life. For the 95 to 98% of us that are left, it's going to be a different story. But I want to tell you, and hopefully you see this as we move through the message, that for the 95 to 98% of you here, that God's not going to call into full-time ministry, your role in the kingdom is actually more important than the role of those that God calls into full-time ministry. Your role is more important than those in full-time ministry. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 3 today, and I, and I hope that you'll see this play out as we look through just a few verses, verses 10 to 14. And like always, you can follow along in your Bible or your mobile device, however you interact with God's Word. It's going to be up on the screen, and whether you're here in person or you're watching at home, you can go to reallifecc.us, uh, our website, and it works really much like an app. You can go there and click on the My Message Notes link and you can follow along. All the main points, the scripture references, all that stuff, you're going to find there in My Message Notes. And at the end of that, you can plug in your email address. You can send those to yourself to remind yourself, or maybe if you take notes during that, uh, which you can do right from that app, um, you can send those to yourself as well. So John chapter 3, 
This is the beginning, um, really the way beginning of the ministry and the life of Jesus. In fact, other than um, Jesus being born, that's really the only thing that's happened with Jesus, right? Like, so the angels have come, they've prophesied to Mary and Joseph, this is what's going to happen. Jesus has been born. And now in chapter 3 of, of Luke, we're introduced to this guy, John the Baptist. Now, the only thing we know about him is that Mary's cousin Elizabeth was pregnant with John. When Mary was uh, just a few months along, Elizabeth was farther and she gave birth to John. And it's been several years. It's been um, close to 30 years now. And John finally shows up on the scene. So in Luke chapter 3, John has been preaching his very first recorded message in the Bible. And what John did was he lived in the wilderness and, and he would kind of come to the outskirts of town where people would gather. And in those days, people gathered around uh, bodies of water. And so John comes to the Jordan River where the women would come to wash their clothes and people would gather because it's a little cooler there next to the shore, uh, next to the water, and John would come and preach. Now apparently, John has done this multiple times because by the time we get to chapter 3, there's a large crowd of people here that are listening to him. So they must know that John shows up at the Jordan, he looks funny, we're going to go listen to what he has to say, and so there's all these people here, and this is what happens in verse 10 after his message. So you got to read before verse 10 to hear what he says there, but in verse 10, this is what we read. What should we do then, the crowd asked. So John preached, right? He gave them this message. At the end of the message, the people are going, what do we do with this information? What should we do then? And John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even the tax collectors came to be baptized because of John's message. And they asked separately, teacher, what should we do? John told them, don't collect any more than you are required to. And still a third group came along the way, some soldiers, and they asked John, what should we do? And he told them, don't extort money don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Now, um, believe it or not, there's a lot of practical stuff here that we're going to get into in just a moment, but I want you to notice two things right off the bat from this text. The first one is that only John is in full-time Christian ministry. Only John in this story is a preacher. Matthew, in fact, tells us, Matthew in chapter 3, verse 4, he tells us that John wore clothes made out of camel's hair. Think about that for a minute. Camel's hair. You ever touched a camel? The fairground, the state fair always has a camel in that little petty zoo. You ever touched a camel? You do not want to wear anything made out of camel. It is like wearing a gunny sack next to your skin all the time. Or, um, I don't know, some of you people in Kansas are, well, I grew up in Oregon, so it's a little different. Some of you can wear wool next to your skin, and you're crazy. Because wool is, is horrible. So take wool next to your skin, um, multiply that by about 100, and that's camel, all right? Um, nobody, what, you don't go to Dillard's and buy clothes made out of camel hair. Nobody does that because it's disgusting and awful. So John wore clothes made of camel's hair, and just to spice things up a bit, he wore a belt around his waist, just to keep that camel hair really close to his skin. 
And then he ate locusts and wild honey. Yum. We're all lining up to be a pastor, right? We see John out there preaching and everybody's like, ooh, God, I want that job. No, nobody wants that job. That they were going out to look at John because he looked like a crazy wild animal. His hair was disheveled, he was wearing camel, it was just ridiculous and what happened? Okay. Did I cut out for a second? No, really? Oh, that's weird. Okay. Anyway, it sounded like I cut out. It freaked me out. Okay. So John looked like this crazy person, and I think really that's what people were coming out to see. I mean, yes, they listened to his message. Obviously, God stirred their heart, but I think initially they came out to see him because he looked so weird. There are a few that God calls to this kind of life in full-time ministry or missions because it's not, it's not easy. The second um, thing we, we noticed, I think, in this, in this passage is that, is that there are three groups of people, and these sound like they're pretty large groups of people who were not called in to full-time ministry. Three different groups come and, and, and ask what they should do with John's message of repentance and baptism, and he did not tell them to quit their jobs and become pastors to leave their friends or their hometowns. In fact, nothing about how or where they lived or what they did as work changed for them. Instead, he told them to change how they acted. And that's important. In fact, our bottom line comes from that today. If you remember nothing else from this morning's message, if you're distracted by other things or whatever, make sure that you hold on to this because it could radically change the way you live where, what happens at work, it could change your family, it could change your entire life, and certainly your spiritual influence in the world. Our bottom line today is this. God would rather have you do something than think some way. Process that for just a second. Because I think a lot of times we come to church and we think that church is about changing how we think. And, and it is to some extent. God says the Holy Spirit comes and begins to change us from the inside, but, but really, God would rather have you do something than simply think some way. I don't know who said it, but someone more famous than I once said most Christians are educated far beyond their ability to obey. We know way more about what God wants us to do than we actually do in our lives. All three of these groups were told to do something with their faith, not to think some way about faith. I think that's important. In fact, I think that's huge for us because each of these groups would have had slightly different ideas about faith that they probably could have argued back and forth, but John simply tells them to act. In each of their personal contacts, act like your faith means something to you. I think those are important points. You know, for 95% or more of you here this morning or watching online, God will never ask you to quit your job, to leave the situation you're in, or to change things up immediately in your life when you come to faith in Jesus. 
In fact, for 95 to 98% of you, at no time in your life is God going to part the skies and tell you, I want you to be in full-time ministry. I want you to be a pastor or something like, like that. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, 17, we're actually told kind of the opposite of what we would expect. Paul encourages new believers in 1 Corinthians. He says, live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to you. He goes on to say, each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. And so when people come to me over the last 23 years and say, what does God want me to do? I go, what are you doing? What are you doing right now? What's your home situation like? Where are you working? What's going on? Because chances are God wants you to stay there. John the baptizer came to the outskirts of the city to preach repentance from sin as a means to prepare the way for Jesus, his younger cousin who would soon begin his earthly ministry. While at the Jordan, many people, women uh, especially, but then later more people would come, and John would preach, and they would be baptized, those who believed. Those who believed that they were sinners and guilty before God, and those who wanted to change their lives so that they might be ready for the coming Messiah, Jesus. And John's sermon was simple. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Really, we could say it like this. Live like your faith means something to you. That's what John was telling them. If you want to make God the Lord of your life, you want to repent from the way that you have been living, if you want to live for Jesus, then prove it by the things that you do, by the way that you live. And it was a pretty intense message. And so John preaches this message, it sinks in, and many people are baptized to signify their desire to live a different, different life. That's what repentance means, by the way. It means to change direction. And those seeking to change are then divided by John um, here in the text into three groups. And so I want to just talk about the groups a little bit because I think it's it's interesting to see where each of them are coming from. The first group that's mentioned in, in verse 10 is just the crowd, the general crowd. In every large group, there's a majority who think and act and talk very similar. Go to your, go to your workplace, think about work, think about school, other situations you're in. The majority of people are going to think and act and talk pretty much the same. You're going to have some outliers around, and, and we're going to say those people don't really fit into whatever's going on, but most people in a large group in that kind of situ situation are, are going to think kind of the same. In this case, they would have been just like the average God-fearing Jew. They believed that they were the chosen people, and, and they were, that anyone who wasn't a Jew was worthless and going to hell. That was not true, by the way. Those, these people, these average, ordinary Jewish people, needed Jesus just as much as the rest. The difference with this group of people is that they were the children of Abraham. Like they had this line of descent from Abraham, God's chosen one, and they believed that because of their ancestry, that God uh, had a special place for them. That, that God was just going to save them. And so what that means is they, they really felt like because of where they came from, their lineage, their genealogy, that God had kind of accepted them by default. 
And so as long as they kind of followed the, the rules and did what they were supposed to, um, everything was going to be good for them. Second group that came along were the tax collectors. Now this group was despised by that larger group of Jews. The tax collectors were Jews themselves, but the rest of the Jews thought that the tax collectors had sold out. So let me tell you what happened. By this time, Rome has conquered Israel. Rome has taken over uh, by force. They're now occupying Israel. They have uh, their own, some of their own leaders. They've brought in kind of a, a puppet king for the Roman Empire, uh, Herod, who was not really, was like a half Jew, and uh, he was in charge of Israel, the king, essentially, but he really was just a puppet of Rome. And Rome needed Jewish people who knew the land and knew the people around to collect taxes for them. And so there are some opportunist Jews who decided that they could work for the government, the Roman government, they could collect taxes from their Jewish neighbors, they could give them to the Roman government, and that was a good job because there were some perks. If you were a tax collector, and the tax for Rome, let's say, was 10%, and you collected 15 or 20 or 30 or 50% in taxes, as long as Rome got their 10%, they didn't care what you did after that. And every tax collector had guards, Roman guards, um, assigned to them, and so they could force you to pay the tax. And so tax collectors in that day lined their pockets with the money of their fellow man. And so the rest of the Jews not only believed that tax collectors were traitors, but believed that they had walked away from God. Because remember the, the first command is like, I'm God, don't serve any other gods beside me, right? And the, uh, the Caesar, the king of Rome, Caesar, believed that he was a god. And, and so for a Jew to work for the Roman Empire really was saying that they're working for a false god or an idol. And so the Jews, the regular Jews, hated the tax collectors. They sweeped in, in the midst of devastation and the craziness that happens with the Roman occupation. And then they charged exorbitant fees while convincing people they were there to help. Nobody liked the tax collectors. The third group of people is the, the soldiers that are mentioned. Now, this gets a little interesting because it's unlikely that the soldiers that they're talking about are Jews. And it's unlikely that they're Jews because if the Romans came in and occupied Israel, why would they allow the Jews to have a standing army with which they could muster troops and fight against them? So probably when they came in, they dismantled any military that the Israelites had. They replaced it with the Roman soldiers, centurions, uh, and a Roman military. But that Roman military may not have been made up of Romans. If you were a centurion, if you were a general, if you were higher up in the military, you were probably a Roman citizen. But if you were just a regular infantry for Rome, good chance that you were not necessarily Roman, but you were one of the myriad of other nationalities that Rome had already conquered and then conscripted to fight in their military. So the chances are that these soldiers were not Jews, but they probably weren't Romans either, uh, at least by nationality. Um, they were probably uh, Greeks or some other nationality that Rome had already conquered. They were there listening to what John had to say, and at the end, they accepted the message of John just like everybody else. 
John then gives each group specific ways that they can prove their repentance, each tailored to the specific role that they have in life. But before we get to that, here's the point. Not to one single group did John say, quit your job. Not to one of those three groups did John say, quit. They came to him and said, John, what do we do? How do we prove that we've repented and we're following God? What do we do with our lives? And not to one group did he say, quit your job. Even though one of those groups were traitors to the Jewish people and the other group were military. Let me take a side. I wasn't going to mention this, but it just made me think of it. Years ago when I was in Bible college in Idaho, uh, we were at home one day, just happened to be home, I don't remember what day it was, and there was a knock on the door. There were a couple guys standing at the door there when I went to the door and opened it, and they said, uh, hi, how are you, you know, introduced themselves. We live in the area, they said, and we're getting ready to start a Bible study, and we would love it if you would come and join us. Uh, oh, that's, that's interesting. What you need to know about um, Idaho is that in the Boise, Idaho area, there's actually more Mormons per person in Idaho than there is in Utah, Salt Lake City. There's tons everywhere. And so that was part of this group. So um, they come to me, they knock on the door, you know, be cautious a little bit. And, and, and so they say, you know, we start a Bible study. And I said, oh, um, thank you, that's very nice, but I work full-time and I go to Bible college full-time. Oh, you go to Bible college, where do you go? I go to Boise Bible College. They said, oh. What would you do if somebody came to your door and broke in in the middle of the night and was going to do you or your family harm? <laughs> and I said, I'd get them before they got me. I didn't even have a gun at the time, um, but I had a bat. So I'm like, I'm, like, I'm not going to be a victim here. Something's going to happen. It's not going to be good, and probably, let's say, it's not going to be good for them. And they said, you call yourself a Christian, and you would harm somebody that might send them to hell? That's a pretty intense question, right? And I thought about that for a second, and I went, So I think that my first priority as, a, as a, a, a husband and a father, young, young kids at that point, is to protect them, right? I mean, that's my role um, in the family is to protect the rest of my family. And if you come busting down my door in the middle of the night, I don't know why you're there. Let me just tell you, if you're thinking about that now, because I've had to warn my children, I don't just have a bat anymore. Like I'm a grown-up, okay? So... So there are other much lethal means uh, in my home to take care of that situation. But these men were just appalled that I, would, that I would do that. You know what I did? I pointed to Luke. And I said, look, Roman soldiers, these soldiers came, military people whose job it is to kill, right? They came to John and they said, what do we do now that we've accepted your message? And John didn't say, quit your job. Instead, he said, act like there's a God at your job. So whether you're just a normal Jew here coming to hear John, you're a tax collector, you're a traitor to the Jewish people, or you're a Roman occupying soldier of the people, John didn't say, quit your job. He said, act like there's a God at your job. 
I think that's a message for us today as well. And so we're going to camp here for a moment. For 95% of you this morning, maybe 98, maybe 99, I don't, I don't know, God will not call you to be a full-time minister or pastor or be a missionary. We're all still followers of God. We're all still supposed to be doing what God has called us to do, just like those who are in full-time ministry or missions, but we're just not called to that same situation. So if you come to Jesus, and you're a plumber, or a lawyer, or you work at Evergy, or you're self-employed, or you're a car salesman, maybe not, yeah, car salesman, uh, if you're a teacher, or you work at the refinery, or you're in the medical field, or you work um, at the prison, or you're a performer, or maybe you work in the circus, or you're a barista, or you're a stay-at-home mom, whatever it is that you do, unless what you're doing, you know already, is an outright sin, God doesn't expect you to quit your job. He just expects you to act like he's still your God while you're at your job. When you're at your job, your school, when you're in your neighborhood or at the book club or the local grocery store, your portrayal of Jesus is enormously important because you and I have got to be different if those outside the walls of this building are going to see Jesus. They don't see us in here when we're nice to each other. And there's no reason to really get mad and, and angry. <laughs> Trevor was talking about that earlier. They don't, they don't see us in here where we're loving each other and woo and go Jesus. They see us when we're at work. They see us when we're in the line uh, at the elementary school and we're late to work and somebody has parked in the place that you're not supposed to park. That's where they see us. They see us screaming and yelling because somebody cuts us off in, in traffic. They see us at work when we had a bad day. Look, worshiping the God of the universe on Sundays means very little if he can't be the Lord of your personal life during the week. Worshiping the God of the universe, what we're doing right now, means very little if God isn't the Lord of your personal life during the week. In verse 8 of this chapter, John's sermon, he said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And this is what that means. If you're going to stand at the edge of the Jordan River soaking wet from your baptism, you need to be ready to stand in faith at your workstation, in your homeroom class, or in line at the grocery store. But the same faith and peace and, and joy that you had when you were pulled up out of the waters of baptism and that overwhelming feeling that, that comes where you're like, you absolutely know that God loves you and you're right where you need to be. That's how we should stand when we're at our workstation, when we're sitting at our desk, when we're in line at the grocery store, when we're in line at the car lot. Because faith isn't productive if it's not public. I didn't put that on the screen. I'm going to say it again. Our faith in Jesus isn't productive if it's not public. 
I can have faith all day long and I can believe that Jesus, I'm like, I'm going to heaven and that's it. But if I look like the rest of the world in my public life and nobody knows what's going on in here, my faith is not productive for the kingdom. So there's this one question that everyone asks regardless of their background. When they come to Jesus, it's the same question the three groups ask of John. What should I do? So let's be clear. Number one, whether you've been a Christian for a long time or whether you're brand new to faith, maybe you haven't even been baptized or know what that even is about, but you've been coming here for a few weeks and God's doing something inside and, and, and you're like feeling like I, I believe. Look, if you're doing something illegal or immoral, stop it. That's pretty simple, right? And we should just know that. Like, let me, let me break it down, because I know sometimes we get, we get in the weeds. If you come to faith in Jesus, and you're sleeping with your neighbor's wife, or maybe your neighbor's husband, you're dancing at the boast house, or you're embezzling money from your employer, stop. Those things are either illegal or Im immoral. Stop. They're inconsistent with your faith. You shouldn't need a sky-parting experience with God to know what behavior in your life has to stop. But short of that, let's look at what John says a little closer. To the general crowd in verses 10 and 11, John responds this way. If you have two shirts or extra food, give some to those who don't. Now this is important because sometimes we feel bad about what we can't give. God is not keeping track of what we can't give. He's not going, oh, they, they want to give, but they can't give, and so they didn't give, so boo. God didn't keep track of that. What God keeps track of is if we have it and we don't give it. If we could and we refuse. Those are the things that God thinks about. And, and so really for the general crowd, for most of us here, the, the message is this, be generous. Don't be greedy, be generous. If you have two, Give one to somebody who doesn't have any. If you have, he says, if you have extra food, let me just tell you, I see Terry back here. Um, Butler Homeless Initiative, every night they, they feed the people who, are, who come in there. Maybe you've got extra food at the end of month or something. That would be a good place for that to go. The second group, the tax collectors in verse 12 and 13, John's response this way, don't collect more than required. So quit trying to lie in your pockets. It goes back to being, quit trying to be greedy and get more for yourself. Instead, don't collect more than required. Really what he's saying is be honest. That probably applies to all of us as well too, right? Just be honest. To the soldiers in verse 14, he responds, don't extort money, don't accuse falsely, and be content with what you're paid. Now most of us are not... Um, in a Roman uh, garrison where we would be in a position to extort money from people uh, or, or, um, or, or accuse somebody falsely. But we are in jobs where we can talk behind somebody's back to get them in trouble because we want the job. Really, John's just saying, be content. And again, that applies to all of us. Be content. So look, be generous when it's possible. If you have more than you need, give some away. You don't have to give it all away. This is not, I'm not, 
you know, Jesus isn't Bernie Sanders, okay? You don't have to give it all away. I'm sorry, that was, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> okay, Jesus isn't any 2020 candidate uh, on the Democrat side. But that's not, like Jesus, the, people, people get mad because they, be, they say Jesus is about socialism. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. He doesn't ever say, those of you who have should give everything away so that you don't have anything so that somebody else could have something. What he says is, if you have more than you need, share that with somebody else. Not so that they would have and you wouldn't have, but so that they might see Jesus through you. That's, the, that's what he's talking about. So if you have some, give it away. God's not interested in what you can't give. He's interested in what you can give, but refuse to give. Second, be honest. In your workplace, in your life, be honest. Do the right thing. Don't say to yourself, it's no big deal. Everybody does it. Deal honestly with your time, your authority, your responsibility. Thirdly, be content. Now, this could be a big one because sometimes maybe you've been in or you're in a job where you don't feel like you get compensated fairly for what you do. And the, and the temptation is there. Satan is always there in those moments going, you know, you could take that pin. You could take a longer lunch. You could get a little bit more for the sake, like not get more money, but you can do these things to take some things, to steal from the company a little bit because you're owed. John says, if you don't like what you're getting paid, find another job. Be content with what you have. Don't try to worm your way and talk behind people's back and do whatever you can. Get, get back. Just, just be content. Be content. And, that, and being content doesn't mean that you settle doesn't mean that you just go, oh, I, just don't, I shouldn't want anything better or anything. I shouldn't want a better house. I shouldn't want a better... That's not what being... Being content is saying, God, right here, right now, I'm at peace with what's going on in my life. I'm not striving for something so that I can have more. It's not a greedy thing. God, I, I just... I'm, I'm okay. And I trust in you. That's being content. So ask yourself, what steps can I take to make the changes necessary to look more like Jesus. So again, real simple. If you're currently doing something at work you know doesn't please God, stop it. Like, like stop it now. That might be impossible. Stop it tomorrow when you go to work. No matter what, say, I'm going to do what's right and then stick to it. Secondly, if there's a way for you to express your faith at work, at home, at school, in your neighborhood by being generous or being honest or being content, then do that. Do that. Just decide you're going to look more like Jesus every day. L listen, why would anyone else, why would anybody else outside the walls of, of church who maybe aren't believers, why would anyone else that you work with or live with or study with or hang out with want to follow God if you don't follow him. Every non-Christian and atheist know what we followers of Jesus are supposed to do and not do. Every atheist and non-Christian, every person that follows something else knows that if you're a believer in Jesus, you're not supposed to lie or covet or cheat or steal or be sexually immoral. Most assume, by the way, you know this is just a little pet peeve of mine. Most assume, by the way, that if you're a believer, you're not supposed to talk like a sailor. So when we do those things, 
what reason would anybody outside the walls of this room have for becoming a follower of Jesus? If we look like everybody else, why would anybody want to come and have what we have? If we handle situations at work and in life like everybody else, why would anybody go, I want what they have? If our faith isn't visible in our lives, then our witness isn't worth much. This, this, is, um, you know, this is tough stuff for us as believers. And so um, what I want to do here is, is just take a minute. The band's coming up. I just want to take a minute and pray with you. But, but once I'm done, don't, don't be ready to leave because we're going we're gonna to sing a song that's kind of going to close out the service and the message. But I've got a little bit more to share with you, okay? But I just, I just want to take a, a second out right here and just kind of go... Um, to God this morning. So just join me in that. Father, you love us with an, an incredible love, with, with a love, with a love that is on us and over us and for us and through us, even when we're not living the way you would have us live. Like your love doesn't change for us. It remains the same, always there, always for us. Yet, God, I know that you want so much more. You want those who, who claim to be followers of your son Jesus to live out that faith in the real world, in their lives, our lives, Monday, and Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, every day of the week, God. You, you need us to be standing up, that our faith would be visible, to not look like the rest of the world, so that there's a difference between how we handle things in life and how those people who don't have faith and trust and hope in you handle them. We're to live a life so that when people who are not in relationship with you go through difficult times, they come to us and say, how did you get through it? And we have the opportunity to say, I have a hope in Jesus that far out outweighs every difficulty that I, that I go through in this life. God, we've got to look like that in the world. We've got to look like that in our jobs and in our schools and, and, and in our communities, our neighborhoods. And when we've got the garage door open and we're just hanging out inside. This afternoon when we watch the football games, we have got to look like there's something different. We've got to live in such a way that other people see you us and so father i pray that you would help us do that and as we as we close out here in the next few moments would you just speak to our hearts today continue to be with us in jesus name i, I want to tell you why this is so important this morning i said at the opening that the 95 the 98 percent of you who aren't called into full-time ministry or missions are more important than those of us that are, and, and here's why. You have more influence than your pastor on those around you. You have vastly more influence on those that you meet every day than I do. God called John to be a preacher, but those who heard John received the message, followed their faith with repentance and generosity and honesty and contentment, but those people who received the message from John 
reached hundreds more people than John did. Now let's say there's 120 people here this morning. And tomorrow, 119 of you are going to go get up and you're going to go to work or you're going to go to school or you're going to be out in the community and you're going to have the opportunity to influence 10 times more people than I have the opportunity to influence this morning. That means you'll interact with maybe 1,200 different people this week. 1,200 people that I will never have the opportunity to even have a conversation with unless they happen to join you at church on a Sunday morning. Because of that, you are vastly more important to the growth of the kingdom of God than I am. And really, that goes for any pastor. Whether it's me or Andy Stanley or Mark Hoover or Craig Groeschel, we are only as successful as pastors as you are at being ministers of God through your daily faith in Jesus. And so this year, if you want to have 2020 vision in your spiritual life, you've got to realize that, that how you live during the other six days of the week speak more powerfully than any words that I could say on Sunday morning. I can preach a fantastic message, best message you've ever heard in your life, but if it makes no impact on your day tomorrow, it doesn't mean much. And so really the truth is this, you are the ministers of Jesus at real life. You are the ones who have the opportunity to speak life into the hundreds and maybe thousands of people that you come across during the rest of the week. You are the ones that, that really have the power to, to grow this church and, and to bring more people into the kingdom of God. You need to see yourselves as ministers of God. Going to do, if God is going to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine this year, we all have to see it ourselves as ministers of Jesus here at Real Life. And so I just want to close with this. I hope that you are ready. I hope that you're ready to do something great for God this year. I, I hope. I hope that, you're, that you'll follow him. Every day, no matter what's going on, that you'll seek to look more like Jesus every day.